Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. When aliens finally arrive on Earth, if they haven't already, will they be naughty or nice? Why would they treat us as equals at all? Are we being naive about the whole matter? Hello and welcome to the 995th, 95th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, coming to you from WON, AM and FM radio here in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, on the Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live, on YouTube and via TuneIn.com. I'm Ben and that was Paul. And today we bring you a new guest with a positive take on a very important subject. So you can give us a call from anywhere to join us. That's 401-766-1240. Or you can email Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com. Well, no, you still can't because it doesn't work at any of the devices in the studio. Well, now, ignore that last part. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can also reach out to us via our Facebook page. Yes. Uh, a native of New Jersey... Daniel Harari is best known for his writing and his uh, 40-plus years of work in Hollywood as an entertainment industry publicist and owner of the Asbury PR agency in Beverly Hills. At the same time, he is a longtime UFO researcher, a three-time experiencer, and the author of four books, including the novel After They Came, the basis for our discussion today. Dan has appeared in the media numerous times, including on Entertainment Tonight. A cum laude graduate of Boston University, Dan holds a Bachelor of Science degree in Communications. He lives in Beverly Hills, California. His website, danharariauthor.com. So, Dan Harari, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. It's nice to see a father and son working together so, so seamlessly. It's terrific. Well, we, we do our best. <laughs> so I guess we'll just hop right into it here. Um, so before we get into the book, can you tell us a little bit about your own UFO encounters? Sure. Okay. Uh, I grew up just outside of Asbury Park, New Jersey, the Jersey Shore. And in 1970, Ben, my very first UFO encounter in my life was 1970, March 1970. I was 14 years old. My dad picked me up from school and was driving me home. It was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. It was daylight in suburban New Jersey, down the street from my, my house. And as we were driving, I saw through the windshield uh, a huge silver V, V, like the letter Victor, uh, in the sky, a craft, a silver V craft in the sky hovering over my father's car. And I'd say maybe two, 300 feet above us, no more than that, and it was very large. Each wing was about the size of two buses, I would say. So I'm in the car, I'm 14, I go, Dad, Dad, stop the car, UFO, stop the car, UFO, this is so cool. So my dad pulled over to the side, he and I got out, stood in front of the car, and we looked straight up, and we saw this remarkable craft hovering and floating, really, it looked like it was floating, no sound of any kind, uh, no propulsion, no smoke, no propellers. It just was hovering and moving very, very slowly over us. And again, I'm jumping up and down. Dad, a UFO, a UFO. And you guys, my dad looked at that craft like he was looking at a head of lettuce at the supermarket. He had no interest in it whatsoever. No shock, no fear, no joy, nothing. No reaction in his face. He looked at it like it was an everyday event for him. 
And then he winked at me and said, come on, kid, let's go home. Hmm. So we went home, and I remember this very clearly. We had a rotary phone in those days. I called the Asbury Park Press, which is my hometown newspaper, and I said, hi, my name is Danny. I'm 14. I just saw a UFO with my dad, and, and it was over my street, Dwight Drive in West Deal. And the lady said, Sonny, I can't talk to you right now. We're getting hundreds of calls about a sighting in the sky. I can't talk to you right now. I have to go. And she hung up on me. Hmm. Now, the most remarkable part of that story, you guys, I forgot about that event entirely for 47 years. Entirely erased from my memory for 47 years. Cut to April 2017. My dad passed away. And I, one day, I'm, I'm in L.A., and I went to a deli to get a pastrami sandwich, and I'm thinking about how much I missed my father. And as I was sitting there waiting for my sandwich, and this is true, something beamed into my brain from above, whether it was God or an angel or my father or spirit, something beamed into my head from above, and I saw the home movie, let's call it, of me and my dad, in 1970, looking at that UFO, I watched it play in my brain. It, it was like recall from 47 years later. And I saw my dad's expression, and I saw, I remembered my dad winked at me, and you guys, while I'm waiting for pastrami, I'm like, holy, you know, holy S word, my dad knew what that was. My dad knew what that was. It occurred to me for the first time. Now we cut to who my dad was. My dad was Jack Harari. He was an electronics engineer for the U.S. Army from 1951 to 1996. He was based at an Army fort called Fort Monmouth, New Jersey, in the Jersey Shore. And my dad designed and invented missile systems and drones and radar systems, uh, things that flew in the sky and spied on our enemies. He the only thing he ever said, I, I asked him countless times over the years, Dad, what do you do for a living? The only thing my dad ever said, you guys, was, I helped America win the Cold War. That was his answer. Mm -hmm. hmm. Now, after I remembered that sighting, and I'm waiting for my pastrami, I took about a pen, and there was a paper placemat on the table in front of me, and I wrote down, write a book about benevolent aliens, uh, lead character discovers his father knew about UFOs. And then I wrote the letters ATC, all capital. And I did not know, honestly, I did not know what that was. And I just kept looking at it until I came up with After They Came. And I said, oh, I guess I should write a book called After They Came about benevolent aliens. And the lead character knows about UFOs, his father. And, and then I got my pastrami sandwich. I ate lunch, came home. And that's when I wrote my book for the next eight, 12 hours a day for the next eight months. So my book sort of was channeled. People have said to me recently that the book was channeled unto me, and I believe that that, that to be true. Well, there you go. Um, I'm struck by the fact that the character, uh, J.T. or Jonathan Tuckerman, has just turned 70 like me. So uh, <laughs> that kind of grabbed me. Um Without giving too much away, we, we can talk about the book because you want people to buy it and read it. Now, um, the initial uh, uh, scenario was very 
kind of grabbed me. You got the guy who was going to celebrate his 70th birthday by uh, committing suicide. And uh, he goes into the ocean in your neck of the woods, and he's saved by two aliens who make him their ambassador to mankind. So if you want to talk more about that and why you think uh, aliens at least would be so benign, you, you already talked about some of that. Um, go ahead. Okay. So, again, my dad just passed. Uh, I was sad. And I thought, well, I need a lead character by which to interact with aliens in, in the near future. I, I set this story, you guys, in the year 2033. So oh. it's only 10 years, only 10 years from now. I'll be, I'll, I'm, I'm about to turn 67. So I'm basically oh, to be 57 again. 60, 67. Oh, 67. Oh, to be 67 again. That's <laughs> okay. Uh, so I have a lot of things in my life to be very grateful for. I based, uh, Paul, I based my lead character on me, but in sort of an opposite bizarro world. You know, this guy has uh, his job, his, his business fails, his children don't speak to him, he's unlucky in love, he owes everyone money, uh, he's about to turn 70, um, his first wife was killed in a car accident that he caused, second wife divorced him, and he just hates his life. So I'm like, let me start out with a guy who's just a sad sack, you know, just a real sad sack, and have him turn 70 and wanting to commit suicide. And, and I, thought, I thought, you know, a guy swimming out to the to sea in the first 10 pages of a book, that has to be a grabber, you know. And, and, oh, I, yeah, and I, when I wrote this book, you guys, I, I was thinking of it as a movie. You know, it's not a screenplay, but I wrote it as though it were a cinematic so my character swimming out to sea, he goes to Malibu, he takes off his clothes, he drinks a huge bottle of vodka, he takes a million sleeping pills, and he swims out to sea. All he wants to do is drown, because he just wants his life to be over. His life has no joy for him. As he's drowning, Paul, Paul as you said, as he's drowning, a huge, beautiful, gorgeous, diamond-shaped UFO, the biggest one the world's ever seen, comes out of the Pacific Ocean, right above him, beams him on board, saves his life, and then this craft slowly hovers over all of Los Angeles, from Malibu, if you know L.A., from Malibu to Santa Monica, West L.A., Mid-Wilshire, Koreatown, and it hovers all the way over to Dodger Stadium. By the time it gets to Dodger Stadium, all media are there and police and ambulances and military vehicles and fire trucks because it, this craft is so obviously not man-made. It's just the biggest UFO, and it's a mass sighting across all of L.A. So by the time the craft gets to Dodger Stadium, it's greeted by dozens and dozens of, of people. The craft stops at Dodger Stadium above it, beams down two magnificent, tall, very tall, uh, white Nordic aliens. I have them coming from Pleiades. They both, one is seven feet tall, one is six feet tall, man and woman, long white hair, blue eyes, pale skin, shimmery robes, and they communicate telepathically, and they say, people of Earth, don't be alarmed, don't be afraid, we're here to help you, we're here to save mankind from your insurmountable problems, we love you, 
Um, we have been coming here for tens of thousands of years. We've helped to advance your civilization. And we want to help you, but we, we, there's one caveat. And then when they say that, they beam down Jonathan Tuckerman, the guy that was drowning. They beam him down, and he's hovering above second base. And he's naked. And he's flopping around like a fish. He has no idea what's happening. And they say, we have a relationship with this guy. He is going to be your ambassador, our ambassador to mankind. Bring your problems to him. We will work only through him to help you. We have amazing technologies that you know nothing about. So this is our conduit. Be, be kind and gentle and treat this man with respect. They lower him to second base, and then the two beautiful aliens get back on their ship, and the ship vanishes. It takes off and vanishes. So now all the media and police and firemen and, and, and military guns, they all come up to Jonathan. He's naked on second base. He's looking up. He's like, what? Huh? What? And they're, so they take him. The next thing they do is take him to the White House to meet the president, which would probably be what would happen in real life. Now, I wrote the first draft of this book in 2017. At that time... Uh, there was a rumor that Oprah Winfrey might run for president. So I was thinking, you know, wouldn't that be cool if this guy meets the president in 2033 and it was Oprah Winfrey? So I based, very interesting. I based the case, it's not Oprah Winfrey. Her name is Tamika Winfield. She's right. an African-American woman. It's close enough to get the, the inference. And he meets her, Jonathan is taken by the military, meets the president, and she goes, Mr. Tuckerman, you were just saved by two unbelievable aliens and the biggest UFO in history. We know aliens are real now. Why did they save you? Who are you? What the heck's happening? And he goes, Madam President, I don't have the slightest idea what's happening. All I wanted to do was die on my birthday. I hate my life. And my goal was to be dead right now. And he goes, instead, I just got to, I just got saved by aliens, and I'm with the President of the United States. He goes, I have no idea what's happening. Long story short, the President then sets him up at the UN and reunites him with his estranged adult children. And they form something called Team, Team Tuckerman, and Team Tuckerman is charged with identifying the major problems on the planet Earth in the year 2033. So they get a big whiteboard and they write. They just write down the, the biggest problems they could possibly think of. Then what happens is once a month for the next calendar year, this craft comes to beam Jonathan up on the craft above the UN building. And once a month they say, Mr. Tuckerman, what can we do for mankind this month? And he starts out, he goes, well, you know, why don't we get rid of the nuclear, nuclear weapons? I think that would be a good start. And they go, wonderful. That's terrific. We will, only, we will only interfere with people if you tell us what you want to do. We're, we're not, we weren't here to interfere unless we were given direction. So he goes, get rid of nuclear weapons. And while you're at it, if you can get rid of biological weapons too, that would be nice. Hmm. Okay, that's fine. A week later, every nuclear and biological weapon on the earth has been melted, destroyed, or blown up by their laser beams. And Jonathan is now a hero. He's a global hero. The New York Times has the biggest headline ever in my book. It says, no nukes, exclamation point, no nukes, which those of us from the, remember the 70s, there was a lot of no nukes protests. Oh, yeah. 
Uh, Paul, you might remember there was a rock concert at Madison Square Garden, the No Nukes concert. Yep, yep. So that's the first month. And after the first month, this guy, Jonathan, is now very famous and a hero. And people are coming to him at the UN and thanking him and praising him. And he's like, what did I do? What, you know, what did I do? Okay, so the next calendar year, they solve, they, they solve famine. They provide clean water <clears throat> to those who need it. Uh, the aliens have an abundance of gold on their planet. They, they gift the world with billions of dollars in gold so that, so every country can take care of its homeless and build new homeless shelters. They cure every physical disease. They cure every mental disease. Um, they provide some, uh, products. Uh, I, I invented two products. One product is called, is a dream machine. Um, this, they gift this to Jonathan as a personal gift. It's a machine by which you sleep at night and record your dreams as you're sleeping. And then the next morning you can actually watch your dreams play back. And that's, a, that's something I invented in the eighth grade. You guys, I wrote a story in eighth grade called the dream machine. My teacher wrote A plus plus best short story I've ever read. So I've had oh, that. Wow. In my, I've had that in my head for many decades. I'm like, I'm going to have the aliens give this guy a dream machine. So that's something they give. give. Uh, and they do all these other wonderful things. The final thing they do is reverse climate change. Oh, they also provide free energy, a device by which human beings have free energy. So no more oil, gas, nuclear, nuclear energy, or lithium batteries. We don't need any of those things. Because now we have free energy. And then they reverse climate change. They fix the ozone layer. They re refrost the poles. They change the, the ocean temperature so it's the correct temperature. And um, they protect the, the trees in the Brazilian rainforest so they can no longer be picked down. So at the end of the calendar year, this guy, Jonathan Tuckerman, wins the Nobel Peace Prize. That's the first, and Paul, I know you read the book. So the first third of the book, this poor schlub on day page one is drowning himself because he hates his life and he's miserable. One year later, at the end of the first third of the book, he wins the Nobel Peace Prize. His best friend's the President of the United States. He's reunited with his children. He meets this woman doctor and they fall madly in love. And, and he, and he gets the Nobel Prize. He's the most famous man in the world. And he gives a speech in Norway. Uh, at a stadium, and he says, you know, I can't believe I'm here. I don't know why they chose me. I'm so grateful for all the people that have helped me do these unbelievable miracles this past year. And he starts crying, and he reaches out to his late father. He goes, Dad, you know, this is for you. And to my mother, who's on her deathbed, you know, Mom, I love you. And that's how it, the first third ends. And I when my mother read that part, she called me. She's still alive. God bless her. She goes, Danny, I just read the third of your book. I'm crying. I said, okay, Mom, that's cool. Okay. Well, you know, why is it that, uh, as I read, I, I got the impression that some of this was tongue-in-cheek on your part? Because, um, I mean, maybe because I've been a book editor in the past, I've... Uh, I'm thinking of alternatives. Uh, for example, if you get rid of disease, the planet would very quickly become overpopulated. 
if you get rid of nukes, we'll go back to the 1800s and huge conventional armies attacking each other that way. It's like you get rid of guns, people start stabbing each other. So if 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 you were not tongue-in-cheek, you have a lot more faith in human nature than I do, aliens or no. What's the well, I... Well, I addressed all those things. One of the one of the months of that first year, Paul, the aliens provide a pill to humans, so every female on Earth can only have two live births and then no more. It regulates female. Oh, I reproduction. forgot that bit. Right. Yeah. So, so they address overpopulation. As far as guns and armies and weapons go, the female character hypnotizes everyone on Earth. To no longer have hate or anger in, in their, in their uh, hatred or anger. So they get rid of guns. They get rid of armies. They get rid of all war. I mean, you know, of course, this is all pie in the sky. This is me with a genie. If I'm Aladdin and I have a genie and a lamp and I could make 10 wishes or 12 wishes instead of three, these are the things, Paul, that I would ask for. So in my book, I did address anger, violence, Racial and sexual and religious discrimination, overpopulation. I, I addressed every major thing that I could think of. It's all in there. No, it is actually. Uh, uh, but philosophically, the question arose for me: uh, Is this morally right? Are, are are we? Do we have do we have a God here that's doing what humans think? God should do and that solve every problem uh, or are we taking away free will and you know albeit the bird in the gilded cage thing you know uh, bring peace and all this stuff at the price of freedom or, or is, is that a good thing or a bad thing well that's true I mean I'm the author of a book as the author of this book I played God I'm like, well, if I had godlike powers on the earth in, in modern times working through these two aliens, there's, there's no limit. I gave these aliens unlimited powers. So I played God. Yeah. Um, now, Richard Dolan read this book. He loved some of it. And then he saw the stuff that you hated, that you didn't like about free will. Well, Richard Dolan was yeah, so angry. That's Richard all over, yeah. He he called me, literally called me yelling and screaming at me for about an hour. How much he loved the, the first half of the, some of the book he loved, said it was incredible, and then he hated when I took away free will. Huh. But you know what? Look at the look at the world today. There are wars. There's unbelievable political discord. We're polluting our skies. We're ruining the environment. Uh, yesterday, a gunman killed eight people, nine people in yep, Texas. Yep. Mm. Okay, so we're not doing all that great with our free will, really. No, no I our, see your point. Right, our world is pretty screwed up. If aliens could come and and you know, okay, so let's say they give us all soma. I think that's from Brave New World, the the drug soma, mm, and we're all yeah. peaceful and calm. What's wrong with that? If these are benevolent aliens who are not coming to kill us or eat us. Like the famous Twilight Zone episode to serve man, right? Everyone, which everyone loves that, including me. Yeah. I watched it today again. They're not here to kill us, eat us, or destroy the earth. Why can't they be benevolent? That's number one. Why can't they 
help us and 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 boost you know boost us ending war ending famine and curing every disease making us mellow getting rid of uh, having us bury our guns and set them on fire what's wrong with any of those things i mean this is incredibly utopian of me but again if i had a genie and i could make wishes these are the things i would wish for no i, I hear you go ahead ben there's there's a there's two really interesting things I, I, I kind of picked out of that. One was how the discourse started where the the uh, you know the, the Nordics come down and they're like, well, we've been helping your civilization for, for millennia and we fed you guys technology and we love you and we care about you, so let's fix all of it. So the, the irony is, the grand irony, is that all this kind of started because they were giving us the technology. Is that is that correct? Um, I'm going with Eric Von Daniken's Ancient Alien Theory, which I'm a big big proponent of that idea. So, Ben, not so much that they gave us technology, but my my premise is that they gave us life. They seeded their DNA with our, you know, our chimpanzee ancestors. Um, Having watched every episode of Ancient Aliens, you know, five times and reading Eric's books and just believing in my heart that these things to be true. I mean, there are UFO references in the Bible that just blow my mind completely. Yeah, they're all over ancient documents. Yeah, I believe truly, and I really do think this is real, and I wish more people considered it or studied it, that they seeded us, they came whenever they came, they, they, now, one of the theories is they needed gold on Earth and they, they needed a slave workforce, so they lifted our Cro-Magnon man, you know, uh, Neanderthal man ancestors, you know, with twigs and, and sticks making, trying to make fire. And they said, hmm, we could probably boost these guys. We could probably make these a better, more pliable race for us to dig for gold. So that's one of the theories is they, they crafted us, dig gold for them. So I'm not saying that they gave us technology. I'm saying that they gave us genius brains. You, do you guys know about the great brain event of the University of Chicago? Oh, yeah. One of, one of the Ancient Aliens episodes, and this one blows me away. 50,000 years ago, according to the University of Chicago, mankind had a great brain event. What that means is from our ancestors to modern Homo sapiens, in the course of a very short period of time, 50,000 years ago, our brains became highly developed very, very quickly, far faster than normal evolution would have happened. And to me, I'm like, well, that's when they came. That's when they seeded us, helped us, boosted us, and made us who we are now. We're so different than any other planet or in, uh, animal or insect or fish on this planet. We're so different from anything else. Well, so, uh- on that note, let's take our mid-show break. Uh, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 AM and 99.5 FM in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back with our fascinating guest, Dan Harari, in just a minute, so stick with us.
Hi, this is Joe Callahan, your Mater D inside the Tiki Bar, heard Monday nights at 6 on ON Radio. It's one full hour of Jimmy Buffett music. The Tiki Bar is brought to you by Attorney Bob Lauder, the Carew Investment Group, Pep and Lumber, and Family Discount Furniture. ON Radio, ON Worldwide, you can depend on us for public service, ON Radio. And we're back behind the paranormal with Paul and Benino and Dan Harari today. Uh, Dan, uh, one of the things in in the book uh, I noticed right off was that uh, JT discovers that he has an implant. And he has uh, apparently been prepared for this all his life by these aliens, who, as you say, uh, the ancient alien scenarios are... Pretty fascinating. If you read any of the ancient documents, uh, you know, the Atrahasis of the Akkadians, the uh, uh, various documents of the Sumerians, uh, let alone Genesis, especially in the original languages, then th- this really does jump right out at you, you know. So, um, what, so th- this has been uh, planned for millennia according to Vandenik and you. <laughs> I, met Eric, I met Eric at, at uh, AlienCon in March. Yeah. And I handed, I gifted him my book. And I, I said, Eric, I wrote this book. I signed it for you. I said, thank you so much for what you've done for all of us. And, I, and he held it in his hand, you guys, and he goes, after they came. I haven't read this one yet. And I said, huh. Eric, it just, it just came out three days ago. He goes, oh, okay, I'll read it. And then he handed it to his assistant. Um, to to the, get back to the implant, which is a great question, and you're the first person that asked me that. I had to introduce the fact that the aliens were involved with JT from from his inception. How do you do that? His his parents, his parents. Now again, I wrote this book right after my dad died. I dedicate the book to my dad. In the second third of the book, the middle third of the book, people ask Jonathan, Jonathan, you've, you've done all these amazing things, you've helped mankind, you've won the Nobel Peace Prize. They all say to him, including the president, why Why you? Why, why, why you? Why did these amazing aliens pick you? He goes, I don't have the slightest idea. They go, don't you think it's time you out? And he goes, yeah, you're right. So the next time he gets on board after the Nobel Prize, he says, you know what, you guys, thank you for all you've done for everything and everyone. Why did you pick me? And Jorathan, the male alien, gives him a device, and he goes, watch this. You call this home movies. Watch this, and then we'll discuss. So he watches home movies of his parents, JT's parents, from 1963, and he finds out that his dad was a, uh, a scientist working with the, with the military on radar, uh, on uh, missiles and drones. And one day, his, he's watching his dad in 1963 at Edward, Edwards Air Force Base testing a missile launch. And the missile collides with a little UFO, and the UFO crashes and then revealed only to his dad, the scientist, on his way home. The dad scientist is driving his car, sees the crashed UFO, and sees that there's a small alien being inside. So he approaches the being 
and he says, do you need help? And the being says, I'm, I'm hurt. And he saves the life of this being, brings it to his motel where he's staying. This is Edwards Air Force Base. And there at the hotel is his wife, who was the lead character's mother. And the two of them, man and woman, husband and wife, uh, nurse this alien back to health. This little, kind, this little childlike alien, they nurse him back to health. As a gift to the people that just saved his life, the alien implants the, um, the implant into Jonathan's fetus. Jonathan had just been conceived by his parents. They had just made love. So the alien shoots somehow through the belly of the mom. The implant goes into the fetus. And the alien says to them, your son will be our chosen one. That's how I acknowledge. Oh, and then later in the book, the lead character, Jonathan, in present day. Oh, oh, so when he's watching the whole movie, he realizes that his dad was a UFO researcher and a scientist and, and saved the life of an alien. And, and, and at the end, when he's done with the movie, he says, wow, my dad knew about aliens and UFOs and he never told me. He never said a word. Well, that's a direct tip of my hat to my father because my father never said a word to me either. Hmm. Well, uh, so Jorathan the alien could just as well have been called Gabriel. Sure. Or Michael. Yeah. One of the things that struck me was, and you mentioned this, was they tell him not to be afraid. Uh, virtually every appearance by an angel or whatever in uh, the ancient scriptures of all religions is they say, don't be afraid. Was that deliberate on your part? Or? I, wanted, I wanted to set up very, very early on that these aliens in my book were benevolent. Yeah. And, and, they, and they say that at Dodger Stadium on day one because they are clearly extraterrestrial beings. Their craft is clearly not man-made. And they don't, you know, if, if, if the military had begun to shoot them and all, the guns would, you know, would just have fallen to the ground. The bullets would have stopped. wouldn't have hurt them. They would have used their power. So they wanted to alleviate fear on just on day one. Yeah. And um, I did that on purpose because, you know, why can't they be benevolent? Why can't yeah, they be right, kind? Right. Yeah, Why can't they be kind? Now, this is interesting. At UFO Con in March, run by a woman named Lorian Fenton, very nice lady, I met a guy up there named Mark Glenn Moore. I had a booth for my book, and next to me, Mark had a booth for his CDs. And I was telling Mark about my book, and he goes, Play it. You, aliens are from Pleiades, really? I go, yeah. He goes, Dan, <clears throat> Dan, you're not going to believe this. He goes, now this guy's in his 50s. He said, since the age of five, Pleiadians have been, have been taking me aboard their craft dozens of times. They're benevolent, they're kind, they look exactly like you described, and they've been teaching me the ways of the universe. And he was dead serious. He read my book. And the other day he called me and goes, Dan, this is one of the best books I've ever read in my life. He goes, I have no idea how you describe Pleiadian aliens so accurately, but this has been my experience my whole life, that, that how you describe them is how they've been treating me since the age of five. So I thought that was very serendipitous. Yeah, and, well, yeah. Dan, I want to get into uh, uh, Ben has a question too, but 
before we uh, proceed, uh, tell people about your website, where people can get the book, etc. Sure. After they came is my book, and my name is Dan Harari, H-A-R-A-R-Y, rhymes with Ferrari. Uh, Dan Harari author, Dan Harari author.com is my website. Um, I have other books up there. My first book came out last year about my Hollywood career. That's called Flirting with Fame. And that's about the many, many major celebrities I've met or worked with since the age of 16. That was a very fun book. Um, After They Came is on Kindle or paperback on Amazon. I may do an audio version. I'm thinking about it. And so Amazon for After They Came and Dan Harari author. If you'd like to reach out to me, I'd love to hear from you. I've been getting emails from all over the world lately, so I think I'd love to hear from you guys. Okay. Uh, go ahead, Ben. So there, there's this really, really interesting um, essay that was written by uh, a philosopher by the name of Thomas Nagel, and it was called, What Is It Like to Be a Bat? And the premise is um, he does a little thought experiment where he considers what it's like to be a bat. And it's really fascinating because the ultimate conclusion is we will never know what it is like to be a bat. We will only know what it's like to be a bat or a human consciousness inside a bat body. So it's kind of like, you know, we, we can think, well, you know, I'm a bat. I'm going to do bat things. You know, we're flying around. We're, we're doing echolocation. We're eating moths and all sorts of fun little things. But at the end of the day, we will never know what it is like to be a bat. And it's really interesting because it's a critique of um, reductionist materialism where essentially the idea is we can kind of know, you know, we can we can just presume, well, I know what it's like to be, let's say, an alien, a Bigfoot, you know, a ghost or etc. But at the end of the day, we really don't. So so the the problem is that I don't know what it's like to be my dad, let alone, you know, what it's like to be an alien. How can we know that, you know, a, an extraterrestrial would even have the same moral structure we do? Great question. I go back to Eric Von Daniken's theory, and if they seeded us, crafted us, gave us uh, some of their DNA by which to evolve, it seems to me, because I think most people on the Earth are kind, and, and meanwhile, most people on the earth don't want to kill their neighbors or start a war. Um, so I'd say perhaps it's a tribute to the hearts and soul and brains that the aliens gave us. But, I mean, Ben, there's no way to know. Again, my book is a wish list. It's utopian. It's a genie in Aladdin's lamp. This is Dan Harari's version of a, of a lovely peaceful and kind world. People have open hearts and open minds. Mm. And as I'm personally looking at 70, I'm thinking, you know, I hope in my lifetime, and certainly my daughter's 33, and I hope in her lifetime that they do come and that they are benevolent and they tell us who they are and why they're here and what they've done all all these years. I'm I'm sorry to interrupt there, but we have a question for the listener. We want to get in before the end of the show. You got the, uh, Peter's question there? Uh, yes, our Colombian connection, uh, Peter Shelley. Peter from Bogota. Indeed, and he, he <laughs> writes to us, which we, we've discussed a little bit, but we can go a little bit more in depth if you if you have the ability to, Dan, which is, um, uh, can you please ask Dan what uh, 
has he done to find out more about his father's aviation work? And how close was his 1970 event to an aerospace contractor? Okay, so my dad, like I said earlier, designed and helped create and produce missiles, drones, and radars. He, in his, as he got older and more proficient and, and, and rose up the ranks as GS, which is government uh, service, he rose up to the rank of GS-13, he started as GS-5. He... He doled out contracts to TRW and Hughes and Lockheed and things. He visited uh, the air manufacturing aircraft people in Southern California for decades. Uh, he used to come out to L.A. for decades. He went to Edwards and um, Vandenberg, Fort Bliss, and White Sands countless times to see things flying around up there that he was involved with. So I believe... Oh, oh, so here's the thing. When I say that my dad knew what the craft was in 70 after his death, I believe now that it was a military-made craft. Now, again, my dad worked at Fort Monmouth, which was very close by to, to our house. Uh, I believe it was man-made military. I believe my dad knew what it was. I, and the big picture, I think my dad may have used, known about or used reverse alien technology, and I'll tell you why I say that part. <clears throat> After my dad died, I called my mother, still alive, and I said, Mom, did Dad ever talk about UFOs with you all the years he worked at the, at the Army? She said, no, but in 1951, when he started at Fort Monmouth, they took him down into the vaults in the, at, the, at the fort, and they showed him something top secret, and they said, as long as you live, you can never tell anyone what you saw here today. He came home, she said he was white and shaky and pale and nervous. And she said, honey, what's wrong? And he said, I saw something today, top secret, and I can never tell you or anyone as long as I live. And my dad never did. He never revealed that, that information. So putting all these little tidbits together, I believe what he was shown that day, I truly believe was extraordinary. And I think it was probably extraterrestrial. And I think it was part of his electronics work for the military over the years. I think he was aware. Now, think about this, you guys. Roswell was in 47. My dad had this experience in 1951. That's only four years later. Yeah. Uh, not that we want you to leave here with a big head, uh, Dan, but um, we have a comment from Jim. Right here in one socket, right there at the bottom. Indeed, and Jim writes, I'm currently listening to Behind the Paranormal Show today, and that guy's story is riveting. He should write a screenplay based on that story. It's incredible, and the story is indeed movie-worthy. Well, there you have it, Dan. Um, we only have a few minutes left, but uh, you have another book about your paranormal life, you know, and uh, I'm fascinated by... <laughs> Yeah, the story of your apartment haunted by your grandfather who turned into a poltergeist. <laughs> uh, and that's, in my experience, not how it works, but I could be wrong. So uh, could you briefly tell us about that one? Sure. I like the, the very... gargoyle one, too, but we can't get to that today. You know, I like the gargoyle one, too. Yeah. So... As I'm getting older, I'm remembering... I have a very, very good memory. 
and I've been mem- remembering more events from the, as I'm getting older, from the course of my life. Um, I've had, after, uh, just quickly, my next book, My Paranormal Life, that comes out in January. And after my dad passed, you guys, he visited, he visited my room three times as a ghost. And then several times after that, in dreams, incredibly vivid, lucid dreams, he spoke to me about being dead. So I wrote a lot of stories about my dead father in there. Uh, when I was a child, I fell off a billboard sign. A creature saved my life. I think I, uh, I think I died because I woke up an hour later in a strange house, and I saw a creature leaving and, and snorting at me, and it was not human. And I'm, my mother goes, "Yeah, you were dreaming. You were dreaming." I said, "No, mom. It's my very first memory in my life. I remember it very clearly." The poltergeist story, Paul, that you asked me. Um, I moved in with a girlfriend exactly, you know what's interesting, exactly 20 years ago. I moved in with a girlfriend here in Beverly Hills. We rented an apartment together. And early, uh, the day we moved in, I was outside at the truck, and she was inside, and she heard Joe. She heard someone say Joe. She turned around. No one was in the house. Um, a couple days later, I was about to light a fire in the fireplace. And you know those long fireplace matches in a round tube? Yeah. I pulled out, I pulled them out all at once, very quickly, and they caught fire like a torch. All 50, all 50 matches. I pulled it out in a torch, and it was in my face. It was a torch in my face, and I was frightened to death, and I I swear to you, a bluish-white mist came from the dining room through the living room. It grabbed that torch out of my hand, and it threw the torch into the fireplace. Uh, That was a ghost. Because I, I saw it with my own eyes, and I, exper- I experienced it. It was without question. A couple of days later, in the middle of the night, my son and my daughter were sleeping over. My my son screaming, "Dad, there's someone in my room! There's someone in my room!" Something had been knocking on his walls in his room and woke him up. Uh, the night before that, a glass was smashed in the bathroom. Three in the morning, a drinking glass had been smashed to the ground in our bathroom for no apparent reason. So finally, my girlfriend, my son, my daughter, and I sit down. And we did a Ouija board. Oh, and dear. The other the other day, George Norrie said, "Dan, be careful of Ouija board." Um, we did a Ouija board, and I said, "Who?" I said, "Are is there? Are you a ghost?" And it said, "Yes." And I said, "What's your name?" And it wrote Joseph, right? And my girlfriend heard Joe. So this <clears throat> this creature, whatever it was, his name was Joseph. And then I said, where are you from? And you guys, this was the killer. It wrote, Syria. And then I said, holy S, are you my Grandpa Joe? And it put, yes, because my Grandpa Joe was from Syria. You know, how would the ghost know that it was from Syria if it wasn't my grandfather? And then I said, well, why I are you? answer that. And, and then it said, why? I said, why are you here to, to teach? Uh, who are you here to teach? Jordan. Well, that's my son, Jordan. And then, uh, you know, we went back and forth, and I, I said, look, Grandpa, I love you. Please leave. You're scaring us. You need to leave. And I put yes. And then after that, nothing ever happened. So my Grandpa Joe either was a, uh, an imposter or it was really him, but he left after that Ouija board session. Well, there you have it. Uh, that sounds very much like the first case that I worked on in 73, that turned into a wild and woolly exorcism, starting with Ouija boards. So 
our advice would be don't do that anymore, okay? <laughs> I, only right, did so. it, I only did it the one time. Yeah, okay. Well, that, that's that's good. Uh, yeah, we're always saying, uh, well, what's what's the funny movie quotes have um, some uh, are surprisingly apt at times, and then Ghostbusters 2, which nobody likes but me, <laughs> uh, Bill Murray says, Bill Murray's character says, that's a trouble, trouble the aliens, you just can't trust them. So um, it's a matter of, uh, you know, of uh, judgment and good sense. And they, but, but I must say, your book is, it's a novel, it, it's a lot of fun. Uh, so I suggest people will have a lot of fun when they read it. Uh, hey. Ben, any other thoughts? Uh, I, I think it's, it's kind of fun. It kind of gives me a, a, a sort of like American take on like Douglas Adams almost. Um, although I feel like... It, <laughs> I've read, I think, uh, like three quarters of all the books. I've, I haven't finished all the books. I have like a big compendium of all of, of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series. I I got like three books in, didn't finish the last one or the last two. I think there's five books. I don't know. I got I got I got pretty pretty close, and then I got distracted and never picked it up again. Too bad. But I kind of I kind of liked how it, it's it's funny because it, they the aliens are just so they just are so nonchalant about everything. I, I always kind of thought that was really funny, and it was very much like they didn't really care, you know, blow up Earth for like a, a highway. <laughs> that was kind of like the thing. I it was just it was very British, but I kind of I kind of like that. It's it is it is a bit of a wish list, and and in in a sense because it's it, I I think I think your your book, Dan. I I don't. I'm trying to think of of, of a way to put it. It is it is a wish list, and it's not a bad wish list. I think it's really interesting because it it's. It, it puts into perspective a lot of things that we all want, that w- that we may necessarily ever really get with without kind of working with not just ourselves, right, but working with outside forces in in a sense, right? Because there's this whole idea that Charles Taylor, who's a a, a British, uh, sorry, and a Canadian philosopher, who who basically has this whole idea of there's there's these these two selves, right? So there's the poorest self, and then there's the buffered self. So the poorest self is kind of like this, it's sort of like the pre-modern way of, of thinking and existing where the border between one's individuality and the world around them is very porous. So how one interacts with the world around them, it, it's kind of a give and take in a sense. You're sort of a part of the world around you and you sort of take from it and give back to it in a sense. So there's not, there's that, that sort of sense of identity that, 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 we're kind of a part of the world around us, whereas the buffered self is kind of this new, sort of more modern take of of the world, where we have this sort of border between us and the world around us, where we can step back and sort of, you know, kind of analytically look at the world and divvy it up and take it apart. But it, it seems as if where where we're where we collide is kind of understanding the world around us and the issues that we have. And that a lot of it is almost very much out of our control, you know. And at the end of the day, it's kind of how do how do we control the world around us? And there's really not much we can really do at the end of the day unless we kind of work together. You know what I mean? I agree with you completely. And again, my aliens are are teachers. They're they're essentially my aliens are teachers. They're scientists. They're non warriors. They were involved, or, or they know that their ancestors were involved with our ancestors. 
And their goal in coming to Earth at this time in the book, 2033, is to preserve and, and forward mankind and, and really give us a jump start. So, um, and also thinking of the poorest thing, Ben, that you just said. The lead character's parents saved the life of a little alien. Seventy years later, these aliens come to pay back, to pay, to pay back a kindness by saving this guy who was drowning in the ocean, right? So his father saved an alien's life when he crashed. Seventy years later, they come back and they, and they save that guy's son's life from drowning in the ocean. So it's an interactive kindness. Uh, they're like they're like loving grandparents that we all wish we had. Who could, you know, mommy, I have a boo-boo, make it better. And mm. that's, that's the premise, and they're filled with love. People who have been buying this book and writing to me from all over the world have said to me, Dan, thank you for writing about benevolent, kind aliens. They don't have to all kill us and eat us. Why can't they be nice? So the people who have sparked to this book, Ben, have, have sparked to the fact that they're benevolent. Mm. Well, fair enough. Uh, give us your website one more time, Dan. Dan Harari. Author, Dan, H-A-R-A-R-Y, author.com. All my books are up there, including the new one that Paul mentioned, My Paranormal Life. That comes out in January. If you like Hollywood, my first book, Flirting with Fame, also is on Amazon. I have pictures in there with me, with Spielberg and Mel Brooks and Sid Caesar and Jerry Seinfeld and Ann Margaret and Kirk Douglas and all kinds of famous people that I've worked with over the years. So, uh, flirting with fame, my Hollywood book, after they came, my aliens book. Cool. Well, I'll be back after the one comes out in January. I want to hear about all that stuff. Okay, I'd love so, to. I would love to do that. Great. Dan Harari, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Have a great weekend, and I appreciate it. Okay. All right, so let's get to our announcements, Ben, if you would. Sure thing. Already, we're going to start off with, uh, you can check out, check us out and find us at the Exeter UFO Festival in September. Uh, and for my dad, uh, he will be at the Arizona Dowsers Conference in October. Uh, visit our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com, where you can find nearly 1,200 hours of our regular shows and special broadcasts since 2008. From CBS Radio, Achieve Radio, and here on WON AM and FM. Also hear many of these broadcasts on the major podcast platforms, including iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. And don't forget about our show app that you can download. Uh, it's free at BehindTheParanormal.com. You can browse our, our books along with those of our guest co-hosts. Uh, that's at our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com, where you can also find out about the show, our many cases over the years, public appearances, and how to book us. And please check out our charity page. We know all the organizers of these charities, and we trust them. There are some unusual ones, but please check it out. So what do you? What's going on next week, Ben? Well, uh, making his debut on the show uh, next week will be uh, British author Philip Kinsella, uh, who has a very different approach to the Rendlesham Forest flap area. Uh, we leave you today with a thought from American author Dennis Covington. Mystery is not the absence of meaning, but the presence of more meaning that we can comprehend. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. And we shall see you next time on Behind the Paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.